Hello, everybody, and welcome to the JWB Fantasy Football Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about our fantasy football experience, giving you some recent NFL news, and then we're going to finish up with some draft strategy. But first up, Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Nice little 4th of July weekend. We uh, got away for the weekend and left the wonderfulness that is South Florida to go up to Savannah for a few days. Uh, It was our first real experience in Savannah as a city. It was an absolutely beautiful place. Uh, I don't recall. Have you ever been to Savannah that we've talked about? I have not, but, you know, we both know a couple of people who have lived there, but I've never actually been there. Yeah, I think that's kind of what drew me there in the first place because we passed through it a lot, commuting back and forth from Florida to Ohio. But it's absolutely beautiful. It's a city built with uh, like 22 different squares, I think, that are all kind of like miniature parks. Each one is its almost its own neighborhood. So it was interesting to be there for, for four days time over the long weekend and walk around. Uh, what did you get into for the 4th of July? Well, normally my family, we always go golfing and then we get together at my uncle's house for festivities afterwards this this time was a little bit different obviously uh a lot more uh distancing between people uh a lot less people but golf was fun it was the first time i've gone out this year uh it was okay you know uh, i'm not i'm not a very good golfer but <laughs> it was good to see family you know uh you know that's what really matters on weekends like this I mean, that's absolutely true. I've heard a lot that I need to start getting into golfing down here because that's what uh, everybody in Fort Lauderdale and a lot of people on uh, the Panthers do a ton of golfing as well. And I've never been able to really do it, but we'll see. Maybe by the time I'm back visiting in Ohio, I'll be able to go out with you. Golfing is great for people like us who aren't the most athletically gifted people. Yeah, (laughs) that definitely describes us unfortunately (laughs) accurate. All right. Well, why don't we get started? And we're going to talk about, you know, our fantasy football experience, how we got into it, how we've been doing this. So, Justin, why don't you get started? Yeah, thank you. So, I actually went and did a little bit of research into how I got into fantasy football in the first place. Uh, and this is the story that I came up. I'm excited to, to tell you about it. So, from everything that I can remember, I, my first year playing fantasy football was 2002-2003. It's the year that Rich Gannon wins the MVP. And the Bucks and the Raiders go to the John Gruden Super Bowl, right? And I remember distinctly that in 2002, I'm 14 years old, so I'm in high school, and I had nothing to do during a study hall period that was in the computer lab, which now back in the day, I'm going to immediately date us, unfortunately, for this story, but not everybody had good, reliable home computers. So to be able to have an unabridged hour to yourself in the computer lab at school with good technology was still a big deal when I was 14 years old. Uh, But I had no schoolwork and I had nothing to do. And for whatever reason, I can't even remember how, I just decided that I was going to do a fantasy football team. So I drafted my first fantasy football team on Yahoo and I played it that whole season. And I remember winning that Yahoo League that I joined. And generally for me, as you're well aware, Wyatt, 
I'm only doing things that I'm good at. I don't have the patience or the time to do things that I'm not good at. So I won right away. And that's probably the only reason why I'm still playing fantasy football now is because I thought right away I was good at it. But I went back and did a little bit of research. So get this, that team that I drafted, my first team, 2002, 2003, Rich Gannon was my quarterback on his MVP season, 4,600 yards, 26 touchdowns on 10 interceptions. My two running backs were Sean Alexander, who, if I'm not mistaken, was my first pick, uh, who had 16 touchdowns on 1,200 yards that season. And part of the reason why my team was good is because I drafted Clinton Portis, who was a rookie at the time. So he wasn't a particularly high pick, but he went for 1,500 yards and 15 touchdowns in that season. So I came out of the gate with the MVP quarterback and two extremely good running backs. Uh, my wide receivers, my highest pick wide receiver was actually Troy Brown, who played for the Patriots, had 97 catches on the year, only three touchdowns. But I believe this was like a PPR league that I had joined. So his 97 catches meant a lot. Uh, and because he was aging, I had gotten Jerry Rice late who had kind of like a good renaissance season there with Rich Gannon, seven touchdowns, uh, 92 catches, had a, a pretty good year. And because at this point in my fantasy career, I didn't really understand how to draft or how to play the game. So I was essentially just filling in my starting lineup. So I also had Tony Gonzalez on that team, I assume, because I probably picked a tight end a lot earlier and picked a quarterback a lot earlier than anybody who reasonably plays fantasy football would do. Had no injuries that whole year and managed to go through and like win my first title. And I've been playing ever since. Uh, as I got older, I started playing more competitively and playing for different sums of money. Uh, I think at this point, and you can back me up here because I think you and I are going on about a, a decade of doing this together as, as a combo. But we've made money every single year except one or two in the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, and I've been playing usually anywhere from seven to 10 teams, both fantasy football and fantasy baseball uh, for about 15 years now at this point with a lot of impressive wins and impressive leagues in our history. Uh, I think I have a similar story on your side, right? You started playing about the same age as well, didn't you? Yeah, that, that is true. Uh, but first I want to say, what what just a, a dream start to your fantasy career. <laughs> that is how... The, the Justin fantasy career started, but that's pretty great. No, so for me, um, my father has been doing fantasy football for 30 years. So when I was just a young pup, he had me rooting for all his players every Sunday. And I grew to start to love fantasy football. I was following his teams along with him. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, which I believe was also 2002, 2003, my uncle, who's the commissioner of this long-reigning fantasy league, started a league for just the Cousins and I. So that was our first year, and I was instantly obsessed. I was playing as much as I can uh, every day during school, study hall. I'm just reading notes that I have taken before going to school so I can look over them because I just want to look at everything I possibly can. I'm, like, rating players on my own so I'm doing this over and over again, and that's when I really, I think, meet you, which, like you said, is about a decade ago, maybe just a little bit longer. And I think we really started to hit the competitive fantasy football together, really started to gear each other up. And like you said, we've been doing this now for, for a little over a decade, doing pretty well, and that's how we got here today. Yeah, I mean, it has been a lot of different teams and a lot of different uh, experiences that we've had there along the way. No, I mean, you're right. Like, we, 
we hit it off over fantasy football as a lot of guys in our position will. Um, and I remember you and I kind of were together when we first started venturing out into spending larger sums of money on purchasing teams was I think our first few years we spent a lot of the time playing on elite fantasy football because it was one of the safer easiest pay sites that we could use and I remember putting some teams together wasn't there one year where you and I were playing both uh, Jimmy Graham with the Saints and Rob Gronkowski after we took both of them late in one draft and just rode them all the way to to first place in a league so I mean, we've had a lot of those experiences along the way so hopefully we can kind of take some of this knowledge that we now have and I think more of our our system is what has really led to the results that we've had and pass that on to some of the listening public. Yeah, and hopefully we're able to pass our system and the way we do things across to the audience and they'll be able to gather some of our expertise and start to be able to put it into use for themselves. Yeah. All right. Well, now why don't we talk about some NFL news. First off, we're going to be talking about the preseason, which we may or may not have. It sounds right now like we're down to two weeks and the NFLPA is requesting that there be no preseason. And, you know, this could have an effect on players. The preseason is an area of time where a lot of the younger players get a lot of experience. Rookies especially start to get some real in-game reps that I don't think can be duplicated outside of the preseason. And, you know, this may or may not have an effect on some of these younger players and especially rookies coming in. What do you think? I think that you're 100% right, and what's unfortunate is it's an unknown. So there isn't really anything that any of us as fantasy football players are going to be able to do with no preseason. We have no prior sample for how to handle a situation like that. Uh, I know some things that have really stuck out to me, and I, I wonder if you can potentially think of some on your end, but I know like we've discussed using the preseason to kind of figure out how a team like the Bills is going to handle Devin Singletary and Zach Moss, right? We're not going to have any information on that if the NFLPA gets their way and there's no preseason whatsoever to speak of. Like, how do we know what Joe Burrow is going to look like? At this point, everything that's speculation is going to remain speculation. Um, not, not just myself, but a lot of players were very, very curiously looking at this backfield uh, with Washington's football team and, you know, we're not going to get to see any game action to kind of give us some clues as to who's going to have what role or who's going to win what starting position. So uh, a lot of those things, I think, are going to be more impactful on the defensive side of the ball. I think there's a lot of new faces and new places throughout the league that preseason would have told us a little bit more about just those teams. On a defensive side, that doesn't matter quite as much, but there there are some big position battles and some rookies coming into some new new offenses uh, where I was curious to see what preseason was going to look like. And I don't know, for, for someone like you, if we look at one instance like Washington's backfield and all the people that are there, how are you going to handle not having any information when it comes to draft day and you're not sure who they're going to roll out as a number one other than what the coach may or may not say? Yeah, it's really tough when it comes to some of these teams, like you said, for Washington. With Darius Geis, we don't know if he's even going to make the team. They brought in so many different people. You still have Adrian Peterson. You know, we, we don't know. And without being able to see how these guys get their reps, how many reps they have, it's hard to really pin down who's going to be getting playing time. And in situations like Washington, for instance, I mostly just want to stay away. Until I have real information there, I can't trust anything that's coming out. And this can be kind of true of other teams like the Rams. Is Cam Akers going to get all the work? 
what about Daryl Henderson? What about Malcolm Brown? You don't really know. It's tough. To, it's really tough to say. Yeah, I'm with you. It, it is really tough. So there, there's a lot of value in being able to take, at least in my opinion, a lot of value in being able to take younger guys who have a good chance to emerge in an offense. And a lot of times their draft day price is going to be a, a lot cheaper and then they explode and they give you good value throughout the year. So like Antonio Gibson in Washington was one of those guys that you and I had talked about like extensively at certain points. And I don't know how I'm going to feel about wanting to make him the fifth or sixth running back on one of my teams. If I have no preseason information to back it up, uh, Keyshawn Vaughn out in Tampa Bay is another one that we're not sure what that's going to look like, man. Like why in a world where Rashad Penny would have been healthy, like that backfield would have been another interesting case. It, it's going to be odd now to just kind of go off of what we're hearing coming out of Seattle about who's going to be the lead running back. Like, is Carlos Hyde going to make that roster? And do I have to worry about him taking goal line touches away from Chris Carson if I pick him with an early pick? Like, there's an infinite number of questions that I think we could come up with in relation to having no preseason. So I think at this point, it's just a matter of keeping track of what you read in the press and maybe even more so going after good, clear, safe picks in early rounds so that you know when you hit those later rounds, if you want to go after a particular guy like Antonio Gibson in Washington, for example, you better have some safety in your backfield before you make a pick like that because you're not going to have a lot of information to go off of. It's going to be a lot of picking and praying at this point. Um, but I, I get it, right, with everything that's going on in the, the post-COVID world or the current COVID world at this point for those of us who are in South Florida you know, preseason games aren't necessarily the best idea. So I, I get where they're coming from. And if ultimately sacrificing the preseason means that we can have a safer NFL regular season and there's less jeopardy there, it is what it is. But it's definitely going to be something that we're going to have to monitor going forward quite closely. I think you're absolutely right. Another player who I really wanted to monitor in the preseason, which brings me to our next piece of NFL news, was Cam Newton, who signed with the Patriots, who presumably going to be the starter. We know that there's Jared Stidham there, but I don't think anybody seriously thinks that Jared Stidham's going to be starting over Cam Newton. But with Cam Newton, you know, last time we saw him, he was hobbled. He's had shoulder injury, had surgery, had surgery on his foot. What's he going to look like on the field right now? You know, that's what I want to know. And without the preseason, it's going to be hard to tell. But right now, I can't see him as anything more as a high-ceiling QB2 right now. What do you think? Well, I think you're exactly right. He is around the mid-teens on the quarterback rankings that you and I have put together, and I think that's where he belongs. Uh, in terms of Jared Stidham, I think you're correct that we can put that to bed. If there was any faith that Jared Stidham was going to come out and lead this offense anywhere, Cam Newton doesn't land in New England. So I've seen some, I guess I would call more outlandish reports on TV and online that the reason why they're only paying Cam the salary that they're giving him is because they only intend to use him in minor roles. So like one, uh, one philosophy I heard is that if you look at the contract, it suggests that Belichick is looking to use him almost as like a Super Saiyan version of Taysom Hill down in New Orleans where there's just Cam Newton packages. I don't buy that. I assume that you are the same way as well. Like he's going to be the starting quarterback of this team. And that, that does provide value in theory but that's as most as we're going to get. So we're going to have to pick a guy like Cam Newton on our potential feelings on what he's going to do in that role and what type of numbers he could put up. But 
again, it's going to be a situation where people have to monitor. If you feel good about Cam and you want to take him, you really need to make sure that you have a, a very, very strong second quarterback on your roster in case it doesn't work out. Uh, so I, I guess if we're to have Cam Newton on one of our teams, I'd figure we're looking at taking almost Cam and another quarterback back-to-back -back or something very, very similar to that so that we have two guys who are about the same caliber. We're just hoping we're reaching for a higher ceiling with someone like Cam. Uh, what, what I think is very interesting as well, looking at that particular situation in New England, is what it does to the rest of the roster. So I've never been one to have a ton of faith in New England receivers. I think it's difficult to predict, just like it is with their running back situation. But we have seen in recent years people be high on Sony Michelle as a guy who you can at least count on to get some touchdown work for that particular team. So we we had discussed kind of taking Sony Michelle back a little bit with the possibility of Cam Newton doing some rushing and getting some goal line touches of his own. What do you think about the uh, rest of the offense, about how Cam will affect receivers there, and in particular how Cam may affect the value of their running backs? Well, with Cam and his receivers, I think going back – if you look at the receivers he's played with, he's played with a lot of guys who are bigger-bodied receivers. So with that in mind, I think that kind of means a boost for Nikhil Harry, who fits that mold, even though he was basically a non-factor for New England last year. He projects to have a bigger role this year. And with Cam, I think it gives him a, a little bit of a bump. You still have Julian Edelman there, who is obviously just the best receiver on that team, the best option for Cam Newton. And I think if you go back and look at Cam's stats through the years when he was starting in Carolina, yes, he liked big body receivers, but really what I think stood out the most is that Cam is a guy who, if he knows he can trust you, he's just going to give you a chance with, for the ball. When he first came in, he had Steve Smith, who is definitely not the biggest receiver in the world, but was a guy who would go up and get the ball for him. So he trusted him. I, I think Julian Edelman is still going to be a big part of this offense. And I think James White will also still be a big part of the passing game because James White is a very good receiver. I mean, yeah, you're right. It is very interesting to to think of how that might work. I could definitely see how in PPR leagues in particular, the presence of Cam could give a boost to guys who you think may catch the ball more, like a James White type, for example, could become a very good late-round running back if it goes the way that we think it would. Uh, but let's look at it. Let's break down some numbers as far as Cam is concerned. So the projections that you put forward for Cam Newton, you've got him at 540 attempts on the year, throwing for 3,700 yards, 24 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, and you're giving him four rushing touchdowns for the season, which would be a pretty good boost. All in all, that's that's coming out to what, like quarterback 16? Do I have that number correct? He's right in that range. How'd you come up with some projections like that? What did you kind of use as a formula to put out those numbers? Well, when you're looking at what a QB is going to do for a team, first you have to look at what that team does, what, what historical data is there behind the team. And then you take the player and insert it into what that team does. So with Cam Newton, you know, he didn't throw too many passes when he was the starter in Carolina, but in New England, they play a more up-tempo offense than normal. So you have to up Cam Newton's passing attempts a little bit. And then you start to analyze all his historical data of his completion percentage, his touchdown percentage, his interception percentage. You kind of take those and you have to see, do, do those seem right for this year? For Cam, his completions percentage is actually, for his career, under 60%. In New England, considering he's going to have James White 
and Julian Edelman, you'd think that he's going to be able to have a lot more high percentage throws underneath. So we have his completion percentage being 62%, and that's how we got to his numbers. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, that makes a lot of sense as far as projecting a, you know, a very well-known commodity in a completely different offense, uh, to be honest. So as far as quarterback rankings go, right, I, I'm looking at Cam Newton right after a guy like Ryan Tannehill or Matt Stafford, right before a guy like Jared Goff or Daniel Jones. And I think you've got that pegged pretty much perfectly at this point. So I, I guess in terms of you and Cam as his own fantasy commodity this year, like that, that would be my overall advice. If you want to go that way, because you have a good feeling about it, more power to you, but be ready to take Cam and then potentially turn around and take Jared Goff the round after or take Daniel Jones or Baker Mayfield a couple rounds after you take Cam, knowing that you got to give yourself two, two viable options there if, if you're really going to go down that particular path. What do you think? Does that sound like a sound strategy to go after a guy like Cam if you covet him? I think it can be a strategy that can work. You just have to have a plan. I think you're right. If you're, if, yeah. if it's if you're interested in Cam Newton, you have to have a plan. Whether that's making uh, another pick directly after that for another quarterback, and maybe that's a safer safer option at QB, or maybe you've taken an earlier QB and you take a second QB a little bit earlier than you you would think, or if you, at all to take Cam Newton because of the potential. Maybe it becomes a piece for your team if he comes out week one and he explodes. Maybe you're able to use that asset to get something else for your team. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's all about minimizing risk, and that that does seem to be a good strategy to minimize risk when it comes to a guy like that. Uh, what's the next headline that you got? Well, moving on to another QB, Patrick Mahomes, with a guy <laughs> just I don't even I don't have the proper word to describe the contract that he just got and how much money this man is about to make. Now, I don't know how much fantasy relevance this really has, but I, I think it's just so astounding and so amazing. But I think if you're at all interested in the Chiefs, you are pumped about this because this means big things for the Chiefs for the future. Really, dynasty-wise, if you're a dynasty fantasy football player and you have any Chief offensive player, you are ecstatic right now. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it just speaks to a level of long-term stability in the Chiefs offense as a whole. Uh, that's a huge constant. It doesn't appear that Andy Reid's going anywhere anytime soon, and we know Patrick Mahomes certainly isn't. So when it comes to rookies like Edwards Hilaire, uh, when it comes to guys like Damian Williams, so you might be looking to take late or anybody on that team who's catching passes, uh, it, it's all good news. It's all around. I, I got to think people in Dynasty Leagues who have somebody like McCole Hardman, for example, look at a contract like this for Patrick Mahomes and see nothing but stability and sunshine in the Chiefs organization. And that's a good place to be as long, you know, as lifelong Browns fans, that's about as far away from our reality as you could possibly get. So I can't really look at that situation with anything other than jealousy, but more power to him. He's a great athlete and he's fun to watch. <laughs> You're absolutely right. When you talk about a Browns fan, it's, it's, it's tough to see sometimes. Yeah. Next piece of news we got is the NFL has released their COVID-19 protocols. Now, most of this is just pretty standard stuff. It just goes over just goes over how close contact people can be and how that all operates. But what's really interesting when it comes to this is that if a player does test positive for COVID-19, it is possible for them to play that same week. 
for a player who has no shown symptoms but did test positive, if five days after that po- that positive test, they have had two negative tests, they can actually be cleared to play, which is interesting because we're trying to prepare for this coronavirus NFL. What's that going to be and how does that affect fantasy? Should leagues have more roster spots to account for possibilities? What do you think about all this? So I didn't know the ins and outs of it until you had explained it just there. I was, you know, looking to kind of pick up from you exactly what they're doing. But if if I'm interpreting this right, what you're saying to me is that on a Tuesday, a player could test positive but have no outward symptoms, i.e. they're asymptomatic. And an asymptomatic player on Tuesday could turn in two negative tests, remain asymptomatic and then by Sunday they're on the field and they're playing that is what it looks like it's going to be how does that affect practice time I mean we have to assume that they can't practice that week at least not with the rest of the team yeah I I think even if that player does become active you have to be cautious about that player yeah it would seem as if they'd be going into the week without having done any preparation other than mental preparation so i I guess off the top of my head here's a couple of takeaways that i can give you i feel like veteran players and players in offenses and on teams that they have been a part of for a while are a lot less likely to be affected by something like that the likelihood that someone could walk out and do their job for the Chiefs, for example, like we were just mentioning, a, a stable, stable offense is a lot more likely than, I don't know, let's say a guy like Joe Burrow tests positive at some point during the week and can't practice that week. That doesn't give you a lot of faith going into Sunday. Um, I also worry, man, that every year the one thing that really kills teams more than anything else is game time decision on injury. And it essentially sounds like this is going to be a lot more of the same on that front. So, you know, what else are you going to do? You're going to have to make free agent transactions and potential roster decisions while you're monitoring who's positive, who's negative, what day they're positive and negative, and if it's possible that they're going to get back on the field by Sunday. So you'll probably end up with quite a few situations where a running back one or a running back two could test positive at some point during that week, and their backup might be a very expensive free agent to go after and you might end up finding out on Sunday that that person's going to go back to a bit time role when the starter is cleared to play. So I don't know. It's uh again, it's a totally different world, but I can see a lot of a lot of tricky decisions that are going to have to be made based on what that protocol looks like. What do you think about it? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're going to have to be much more cognizant of everything that's going on and really pay attention to your free agency because you have to be prepared if something happens. It's even if your player tests positive and they don't have symptoms, it doesn't mean that they're going to come back. It doesn't mean that they're going to have those negative tests afterwards. You just really have to be on top of your game for this. So another thing that we might want to do a little more research into, and perhaps we can kind of address this in a future podcast, but in some leagues, they're not releasing the identity of players that test positive for privacy-based reasons. I wonder if we're going to get into a situation where an NFL team may say that they have three people who are not practicing that week because of a positive test and we're never 100% sure who it is or isn't. You know, I think it's a little bit different where you might 
notice, for example, that Derrick Henry is not practicing and is not with the offense and is spending the whole day by himself or not at the training facility, right? Like there are going to be some situations where perhaps that tells us who is or isn't positive, but we'll have to kind of keep an eye on how some of that's going to be addressed as well because we may not even know for sure which players are the ones that are and are not affected. You're absolutely right. And it may be something that just as the season goes, the people who are really paying attention are going to start to be able to tell what players are actually sidelined for COVID-19. But I'm sure in the beginning of the year, it's it's going to be difficult. Yeah, it is. It's going to be a lot of monitoring and being prepared to make quick, sudden movements. So uh, I guess that's all the more reason to have stability in your first seven, eight, nine, ten picks of your team and kind of save all the risky propositions for a little bit later. Um, at least then if you're forced to start making some transactions that you may not necessarily want to at the end of your bench to cover yourself, you're kind of getting rid of uh, a certain class of guy as opposed to losing like some some better options that you may want to hold on to. Um, yeah, what else you got? Let's do another story. So David Njoku has requested a trade, which is quite interesting. I don't think he has much leverage, and I think he probably has the lowest value he has ever had while he's been in the NFL. This just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, the Browns picked up his option. Kevin Stefanski runs an offense that utilizes two tight ends. It seemed like he was going to be a big part of this offense, even with the Hooper addition. But now Njoku is requesting a trade. I can't, I just, I, I don't quite understand it. And I'm not sure who even's going to want to trade an asset for him right now. What do you think? I, I can't see any team that would want to trade an asset for David Njoku at this point. Um, has he been hurt recently or am I making that up in my head? The, the only injury was the one from last year where he broke his wrist and then he came back. And even when he came back, you know, he looked like he was lost, which, I, you know, his, his value was at its lowest point at the end of the season. It started to come back up when, when the Browns picked up his option. But I just, I just don't know now. And the knock on him before that was it has a tendency to drop the ball. Right, inconsistency. So if he's not a great blocker, he's inconsistent and drops the ball, and now there's a question of him returning from injury, no one's looking to add that to their tight end position group. The, the guys who are getting moved at tight ends this close to the season are veterans and guys who you know can step in and block and do a particular job. Uh, there's nothing in Njoku's skill set, at least that I've seen as a Browns fan, that tells me that he is ready to be that type of stable guy for, for anybody's offense. So the question becomes, right, like, then why would he ask for a trade? You're right. Like, traditionally, we're expecting Stefanski to have two tight ends where Hooper's more valuable, but Njoku would still offer a little bit of upside, right? So almost as if they'd be Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard in mini form. So both of them on any given week could have some value. And that's at least what I was expecting as a Browns fan. I don't know that Njoku would have been a good fantasy asset necessarily, but it, it would have made the offense better. So for him to request a trade, and I'm, I'm going just purely off speculation here, but it feels a little more personal. There's either some level of unhappiness with him and the Browns organization. Perhaps he's the type of guy coming from down here in Miami that doesn't like to live and be in Northeast Ohio. But it, it, it just it reeks to me of a situation that might be a little less about the football and a little more about him personally and his level of happiness. And I don't 
I don't know if your take is any different there, but that's the only thing that I can even come up with if I'm trying to stretch into my imagination here for why right before the season starts and he ought to have every chance to increase his value that he would look for an out. I, I think you are right that there has to be something behind the scenes we don't know because if I'm David Njoku's agent, I'm telling him this is a terrible move. Do not request a trade. You're in the best spot you can be in right now. So there's got to be something behind the scenes that we just don't know about. But what I want to know is, are there any teams that Njoku could get traded to that you would then become interested in him as a fantasy option in any form? Who can we think of that doesn't have a lot of stability at tight end? Who has a quarterback that would actually be worthwhile when it comes to throwing a guy like Njoku the ball? So let me throw a couple of names at you. And you tell me if Njoku lands on this team, are we thinking about moving him up the draft board? If he goes to Carolina and got Teddy Bridgewater thrown to him, are we excited by that? A little bit. A I little would, bit? I How would, come? I'd be a little bit excited because that is a team that I expect to pass the ball a lot. And even if Njoku is still inconsistent, he should get enough opportunity there that he could be viable on a streaming basis. Okay. What about if he goes to Green Bay and he's got Aaron Rodgers thrown in the ball? It doesn't do a lot for me. You know, Aaron Rodgers has never been a guy who really gives his tight ends a lot. And there are talented running backs there. And there's a correlation between targets for running backs and targets to tight ends where one side will always win out there. If a tight end's getting a lot of targets, running backs are getting them. If the running backs are getting a lot of targets, then the tight ends aren't going to get them. And that team has turned into a more running offense, so I don't see Njoku really having much value there. Okay. I almost feel bad picking on this guy in particular, but let's say the Dolphins aren't aren't looking to spend the whole year with Mike Kosicki, and he ends up in Miami. Back where he comes from, he's got some stability. He's back in his hometown. Would we expect big things out of Njoku in a Dolphins uniform? I don't think you can expect much out of anything in that Miami passing offense without any clarity as to if Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to be playing or not. If Fitzpatrick is playing, I'll buy in and Njoku a little bit because Fitzpatrick is a guy who's just going to chuck the ball. He's going to give his guys opportunities. And Njoku is athletic enough that he can make some plays. I mean, we saw what Fitzpatrick did with Devontae Parker last year. All right. What if he goes to Washington? Washington is interesting because Washington is a team that can legitimately use a tight end right now. A lot. Washington might be the team that has the biggest opening for Njoku, but how confident are you in Dwayne Haskins right now? Not enough to move Njoku up the draft board. I mean, we'll get into this at some point in the future, I'm sure, but I'm barely sold on McLaurin as a number two wide receiver on a team because I'm not sure what to expect out of Haskins. So there's no way that I'm going to trust him throwing the ball to a tight end that I've watched with my own eyes have issues with holding on to the football in the first place. I think you're absolutely right. So one more. So I, I get where you're coming from when you say Washington has a big hole. But when I heard this news, the first place that my mind went was to New England. The idea of a Browns player in particular or any extremely athletic, undervalued athlete in the NFL ending up in a particular situation where he turns out to flourish it, it, that tends to be New England. That's just the way it seemed to go throughout the years. And I look at this roster that now has Cam Newton and doesn't really have 
a tight end who's big and athletic and can catch the football the way that Njoku could if he could get to any semblance of his potential. So for me personally, I think that's the one landing spot where if I find out at some point that New England has gotten rid of uh, X round draft pick and Njoku's headed to the Patriots, that one might be on my radar a little bit, man. I got to say, after watching Cam spend so long with a stable tight end like Greg Olson, he's got to be looking to utilize the tight end in some form in New England. And what is it, Matt, Matt Lacoste and pretty much nobody else there right now? You, you could be right. You know, New England is a team that could be in need of a tight end. My only question to that is that, or comment to that, I should say, is that with Cam Newton, historically, he's only supported a couple receivers for actual fans, fantasy relevance. And do you think Njoku would be one of those options on that team? I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say. This is another place where it'd be nice if we had a preseason to maybe evaluate right. some of these questions. But you got what Edelman's going to run over the slot. Harry and Sanu are going to try to stretch the field. I guess if Njoku put in a lot of effort, got in Belichick's good graces, and was also running over the middle of the field where Julian Edelman wasn't, I, I could see him getting some targets in that offense. Do they happen in the red zone? Does it lead to anything? I don't know. Maybe not. But it's a little more interesting than I think a ton of other places. But, you know, I mean, we just looked at almost every team in the NFL and we only came up with what, like six potential places that he could even go. And you have to assume that at least two thirds of those wouldn't even be interested in trading for a tight end in the first place under any circumstances. So where, where does that leave us? In all likelihood, he's just spending the year with the Browns. You just got to think that this speaks to some level of unhappiness on his part, which makes him even less desirable to have on a team than he would have been already. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What do you think it does to somebody's value like Austin Hooper? If he stays, if he goes, how do you think that affects Hooper overall? I don't actually think it impacts Hooper whatsoever. I think if he stays, you know, we're in the same place. If he leaves... The Browns drafted Harrison Bryant, who was a very good receiving tight end in college. In the yeah, fourth you're right. Round. I forgot about who, that pick. I, I would think he would just immediately step in to Njoku's role. It doesn't matter if Harrison Bryant is ready to block at the NFL yet level yet because, well, Njoku wasn't doing it. So you would think that no matter what, Hooper's going to have his, his spot in this team. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. I, I can kind of see how Hooper's going to remain immune to whatever takes place there in the first place. But I guess we'll see. So I think we got one more story to go over, and it's the most unfortunate story of the week. So take it away. So Deshaun Jackson decided to make an Instagram post that I will not go into the details of, but suffice it to say, he made a quote, or I should say posted a quote that was anti-Semitic. Now, he has since tried to take it back and explain that he was trying to identify a section in the quote and illuminate that. And it wasn't necessarily about the quote as a whole, but this, there's just no sugarcoating this. This was, this was all bad. It was an oversight by his, by himself. And I, I really don't know what's going to happen to him at this point. He could be suspended. Philadelphia could take action. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, all we've heard at this point so far today is that appropriate action will be taking place. Who knows what that's what's that going to mean or what it's going to look like. Uh, for our purposes, I guess I would say, you know, you got two things that we need to evaluate here. How do you feel about Deshaun Jackson? 
and then what does this do to everybody else? So it, this is a place where I know you and I have always worked on a philosophy that we we want to win our money and we want to win our leagues in a way that we feel good about. Last year or two years ago, I can't remember which year it was, but right, we refused categorically to have Tyree Kill on any of our teams, and it worked out just fine. I think personally, this kind of puts Deshaun Jackson in the same spot for me. I'm not sure what he was thinking. It was a terrible oversight on his part, but it does tell me, you know what, like, I don't even want this guy on my team. I don't care if he can provide me value or not. It's just not for me to have him and draft him. I'll let somebody else do it. So let's pretend now, let's thought experiment this and say that either the league or the Eagles cut him or suspend him. We've looked a lot so far this year at mock drafts and done our own mock drafts, and we found that the Eagles wide receiving core is generally available at the end of drafts. A lot of them are going undrafted. They're tending to be people's last receivers on their team when they do get drafted. So when you look at a guy like Alshon Jeffrey or the rookie, right? Is it Jalen Rager is the rookie there, correct? Correct. And they added Marquise Goodwin from San Francisco, right? Yep. So what does it do to somebody like that? Are there any of those guys who may have been on the fringe before where if you now find out on draft day that Deshaun Jackson is no longer part of the Eagles' future plans, that you're looking to maybe give a bump to one of those guys because they're going to have an increased target share? Speaking specifically of the wide receivers, I think Jalen Rager has to be the guy who gets the bump. And that's mostly because Alshon Jeffrey may or may not actually start the season. He's still hurt. He might start the season on the pup list, even if he does start the season. He's going to be hampered to, his, to an extent, and he's a guy who has injury history. So I think if you're going to take a shot on a receiver for that team, it's got to be Jalen Rager. Yes, he's a rookie. Yes, we were just talking about how this whole season could be rough on rookies. But if Jalen Rager has any amount of connection with Carson Wentz, there is value there. Yeah, it'll be rough to not know that with no preseason, but it would seem to be the ideal candidate to benefit from a more more open receiving core there. Uh, I, I heard you specifically say in terms of just receivers, is should I take that to mean that you think that this could also have an impact on Goddard and Ertz? Absolutely. Going into this season, both you and I, you know, we do these projections for all these teams. And we already had Dallas Goddard as the number two receiver on this team. I think we saw it last year when the receivers were all hurt. Dallas Goddard was the number two receiver on the team. Going into this year, there were a lot of question marks with the receivers to start. So you had to think that Dallas Goddard was already going to have a large impact. And Zach Ertz, he's going to get his. We know that. He's going to be 120 targets or so. We know that's going to happen. But now Dallas Goddard might be an actual viable tight end one. Yeah, I mean, we have, may have to evaluate potentially moving him up a little more into the draft rankings. Uh, I think that is something we'll discuss a little bit later in the show because I know we're going to dive into some tight ends in particular. We'll have to remember to potentially include Goddard in those tight ends that we're talking about at the uh, end of the tight end group where they all kind of become just one person, for lack of better words. That's a good point. So now, why don't we talk some draft strategy? Yeah, let's kind of go through and... Uh, in some general terms, and then we can dive in in some later episodes to specific position groups, for example. But uh, where do you want to start? So first, I think, is the most important rule that I like to follow in drafting, and that's 
you want to make safe picks early and pick potential later. And what that really means is that in the beginning of a draft are your most crucial picks. And while those picks won't necessarily win you the league, they can absolutely make you lose a league. If you make a pick in the first three rounds that goes horribly awry, think David Johnson when he broke his wrist and he didn't play for the entire season. Those are the picks that ruin your fantasy season. So in the beginnings of drafts, I want to take guys who I know I can rely on or who I think I can rely on. And then later down in the draft, once I have these safe picks on my roster that I know I can count on, I can start taking some potential picks like a Jalen Rager. So what would qualify maybe as a safe pick at running back or a safe pick at wide receiver that people ought be targeting, right? I, I don't think we're talking, you know, you want to be safe if you're number one and take Christian McCaffrey. Like, I think we all know that if you pick at five and you can get Derrick Henry there, that that's a pretty safe pick. When it comes to maybe rounds three or four and people are starting to evaluate, you know, taking a rookie maybe who they think might burst onto the scene, like what are some names that you consider safe names in second, third, fourth round that you've been targeting so far this year? Well, once you move past, you know, that first set of running backs that we all know are going to be great. The obvious picks, right. You can start to look, you try to find guys who have workloads that you can count on. So, for instance, I think right now Leonard Fournette, he has a workload that you can count on. Yes, they were trying to trade him, but they didn't. They didn't draft anybody to really make an impact on his workload. What he's going to do is he's going to carry the ball 250 times this year. You can count on him to carry that ball. The Jags are going to run him into the ground. This last year. They're going to run him to the ground, use him as much as he can. Another guy after that, David Montgomery in Chicago. I think people have a sour taste in their mouth for David Montgomery because he was really hyped up going into last season. And then his season last year really wasn't that great. But if you go deeper in the numbers, he got a lot of carries. He got all the goal line carries. He almost had 1,000 yards. It doesn't take much for him to all of a sudden be a thousand yard, eight touchdown running back. Uh, it really doesn't. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And what I think is interesting there is those are two guys in Montgomery and Fournette that I've seen appearing on a ton of other analysts lists for bust picks this year. And I've kind of thought exactly the same as you that I don't understand like why people would be viewing them as a bust. I, we're hoping that if you're drafting your teams the right way, that by the time you're adding Fournette or Montgomery, they're your third running back at that point, right? So that does seem to me like a very good, safe option to have at that that particular juncture. What about some wide receivers? Like, What if I give you a name like DJ Moore that's usually going in the third, fourth, and sometimes even the fifth round of 10-team uh, drafts? Is a guy like DJ Moore a nice, safe pick at wide receiver? I think he absolutely is, and a lot of that has to do with the passing volume you're going to see in Carolina and the fact that Teddy Bridgewater is a guy who loves to throw those short intermediate routes, which is where DJ Moore succeeds the most. I like that a lot. So, like, let me give you a, a, another couple of examples, and we'll see what you think here. If you were going to be faced with the decision to either take a guy like Fournette or take a guy like Jonathan Taylor, who's just coming into the league. Are you going for a guy like Fournette? Because you know what workload you're getting in that situation. I'm, I'm going to take Fournette. And I think that's, you know, the unpopular opinion in the fantasy world right now. But I know that I can count on Fournette. I know what his workload is going to look like. And in a crazy season like this is going to be, with so much unknown, I want the guy that I can count on more. Is Jonathan Taylor this amazing prospect? Absolutely. Does Indianapolis have an amazing offensive line? Absolutely. Is Marlon Mack there? 
yeah, Marlon Mack has produced behind that line. Now, is that just because of the offense and the offensive line making room for Marlon Mack to succeed? Maybe. I think Jonathan Taylor is a much better back than Marlon Mack, but we don't really know how that is going to work out in Indianapolis. And what happens if you use your third pick on Jonathan Taylor to make him your number two running back and it doesn't go the way you want? What happens if he starts the year slow and you start to look for other options or you trade him? We see every year that there's guys who start slow and people drop him or trade him a little prematurely. I, I guess you're right. I would take your side on this argument and I'd try to avoid situations like that. Uh, I'll point out another example for you and let you kind of explore your feelings here on this, but I, I think there's even a, a lot of situations where maybe you got to look at the name of a player and understand that there might be a lot of risk there. So let me, let me ask you this question. Let's say you're sitting in the fourth or fifth round of a draft and you're in need of a wide receiver. You filled in your running back positions well, and you're looking at a board that's got Juju Smith-Schuster's name on it. And the other receivers in that same category are guys like Robert Woods or DK Metcalf or Marvin Jones. Are you still taking Juju just because we've seen him explode before? Or are we viewing an offense like Pittsburgh's is a little more risky for this season. That is a very, very tough choice. You know, uh, you're saying fifth round that I'm guessing you already have one receiver prior to this. I think it's going to a lot depend on who is on your team before you make this pick. Juju is a guy who he has legitimately top 10, top five potential in the NFL as a fantasy receiver. We've already seen it. He could do it again, but there are so many question marks there. Are you willing to take the risk? Whereas you could take someone like Robert Woods, who has so much consistency from week-to-week basis in that Rams offense and is a team that loves to throw the ball as well. If it's me, I think, gun to my head, I'm taking Robert Woods because I know I can count on him. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I guess I'd probably rather have a guy who's floor is a lot higher than I know I can put in that position, especially because, right, like we're assuming that at this point in the draft, you've already got at least one wide receiver there. We're talking about the guy who you're going to put at number two. And yeah, I guess that's not a spot where I'm looking to take a lot of chances. I'd rather kind of do what you had mentioned earlier, which is save my late picks to maybe grab some rookies later. If I'm going to end a draft with a guy like Rager or Ayuk or Jerry Judy, for example, I think that's the spot where I'm maybe more inclined to take a shot on an unknown quantity, but not when it comes to the top of the draft, man. And I've seen a a lot of picks through the years where people kind of go for the gusto in rounds one, two, three, or four, and then a third of the way into the season, that's the end of their team. And just to touch on Juju again, last time we saw Big Ben really was two years ago. Now, two years ago, it was great. But we don't really know what this Pittsburgh offense is going to look like without Antonio Brown yet and Big Ben playing. And we don't know what Big Ben is going to look like. It's just, there's a lot of risk there. Yeah, there is. And that kind of makes me nervous. You know, the more that I can avoid that risk, the better I think it is overall. I think it's just a matter of if you can make three or four picks in a position group that are all pretty risk adverse, your chances that at least two of those guys are playable on any given week are fairly high. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. I don't need a team that's going to go out and give me 160 points and win 160 to 110 once every four weeks if I'm putting up 80s on all the other weeks and I'm losing those games. I'd rather be putting up 120 every time and taking the wins that come along with that type of point total, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I see, too, the next little note that we have written here uh, is to talk about the running back cliff. What exactly do you mean by that? The running back cliff essentially means that 
there are only so many running backs that you can actually count on and project to be solid fantasy options before it gets real ugly. Who do we have in that particular group? Like, what is uh, what are the position groups, or I guess, what do the tiers look like for you at this point? I think somewhere after running back 18, 19 is where you really start to get into these question marks. For us, that means around after David Montgomery, David Johnson, or the Davids, I guess, we start getting into these backfields that there's a lot of question marks. Jonathan Taylor, Clyde Edwards-Lair, Mark Ingram, Raheem Mostert, these kinds of guys where... It's massive question marks. Right. There may be some value there, but we don't really know. So... Let's kind of dive into this a little bit because I think you're really onto something. So we know that Christian McCaffrey, Ezekiel Elliott, Derrick Henry, Saquon Barkley, Dalvin Cook, if he's got a contract and he's playing, Nick Chubb, Alvin Kamara, these guys are good to go. I don't think we have any concerns there. It, we can expect that Aaron Jones, Josh Jacobs, Kenyon Drake, Joe Mixon, Miles Sanders, and even to some extent Todd Gurley, Austin Eckler, Melvin Gordon, Chris Carson, and then the guys we mentioned. Leonard Fournette, David Montgomery, David Johnson are going to get enough work to be productive fantasy backs throughout the year. Why, if you're right, that means that there's not even two per each team in a normal 10-person league. Somebody's going to end up with only one guy off that list. I don't really know how to navigate that on a year like this year. It seems to me like there's no way that you can go out and do anything other than take at least three running backs in your first four picks. And even with that, you're going to end up with one guy who you may be having some questions about. I, I just think that this year in particular, the no running back strategy, the only take a running back every other round strategy, all of those type of fad strategies that we've seen throughout the year, I don't know how in the world they're going to work in a year like this year. Yeah, and this is where it's really, really important to be doing mock drafts. Know your draft position in and out. you got to find out where these players are going so you can try and pin down what your plan is going to be when you get to the actual draft day. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. So I, I think we can say to you know everyone who's listening to us that our plan this year has been predicated off of getting three guys out of that list of 18. If we can't have Leonard Fournette, David Montgomery, or David Johnson as the third running back on our team, we feel like we've greatly messed up. The majority of drafts that we've done, what are some combos that you and I have seen? We, we generally don't like to do mock drafts where we're picking in the first couple picks because I think they don't provide you the type of value that you can get when you're doing mock drafts where you pick 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right? But we've seen on this year in particular that it's possible to do things like take a guy like Nick Chubb in the first round and then get Aaron Jones or Josh Jacobs on the back end for a very powerful running back too. And then at some point in round three or four, you're trying to get a Todd Gurley, an Austin Eckler, if you're lucky, a Melvin Gordon or a Chris Carson to be your third running back before it completely goes goes off the deep end there. But I guess let's look at the other side of this running back cliff and see if there's any names that really, really jump out at us. So after David Johnson, we've got Jonathan Taylor, who we've already discussed a little bit. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who seems to me like a guy that we are also going to have some questions about. Like, I understand he's got all the potential in the world. I think that I've remained a lot lower on him than you have and than a lot of experts have, but I, I just haven't seen it, and I don't know if I want to invest a prime pick in a guy that I'm not entirely sure what their role is going to be in the offense. I, like, what do, you, what do you think about a guy like Edwards-Hilaire in particular? I think you're right that he, he has all this talent, but 
Damian Williams should have been the Super Bowl MVP for this team. That Damian Williams has produced and produced for this team when he's healthy. Now, that may come into play, Damian Williams' health, but I don't think Damian Williams is just going to go away. And people like to point out that, you know, Kareem Hunt was only a third-round pick, and he came in, and he was, he was this great back for Andy Reid. But he was dealing with Spencer Ware ahead of him, and then Spencer Ware got hurt, and then Kareem Hunt got his opportunity. I don't think Clyde edwards Hilaire is just going to walk into this great opportunity. Now, as the season goes along, maybe he becomes the guy. But to start the year, I don't know what we're going to get from him. He may just be a passing down back. And I don't know if I can make him that high of a draft pick and try and rely on that. Right. I mean, have we seen any drafts where edwards Hilaire has been there in the fifth round? No, he's, he's usually gone through the third round. Yeah, right. I, I think maybe on a rare occasion, we've seen him at the very beginning of the fourth. But usually it's somewhere between late two and late three that he's coming off the board. And if you're taking him in that spot, instead of taking a guy like Todd Gurley, who we imagine is going to get every relevant goal line touch in Atlanta, I mean, it better work out for you. If it doesn't, where are you going to go to fill in that depth at running back? Because as we get further down this list, it just gets scarier and scarier. We're talking about guys like DeAndre Swift, Jordan Howard, Kareem Hunt, who's not even the starter for the Browns, Cam Akers on a Rams offense that we don't know what it's going to look like or what they're going to do, Marlon Mack, who could very well lose his job. I, I don't know if I could rely on picking any of those guys to be a number two running back for my team. I don't even know if I want those guys to be my number three. And we're only talking about like what this is. We're looking at like running back 25 when we look at a guy like DeAndre Swift and Ronald Jones. As, as a number three running back on your team, are you comfortable with something like that? No, I can't say that I am. You know, the, the only way I think I can end up with a team where, where Ronald Jones is my number three running back is if the value is so high in another position that it was you just could not pass it up. And if that does happen, you've got to have a plan in place. You have to try and identify the guys you think have potential because that's what you're doing at that point. You're saying, I'm not going to rely on my running back three they're not going to be my normal flex starter. May not even be considered to be my flex starter, but I want guys who could be that, who could get to there. So Ronald Jones, you know, maybe. He could he could potentially be there. He has talent. DeAndre Sift, he's a rookie. We don't really know what's going to happen. Kieran Johnson has been injured, but he's good when he's there. We don't know. You've got to try and find someone that you think could potentially do this. Yeah, and I mean, and that's rough. I kind of see what you mean. If you're going to have a guy like that as your number two or number three, you better have an elite tight end and three elite receivers who you're going to play and flex every single week to make up for some of that deficiency at running back. But what ha like you're one injury away from being useless at that position, and I don't know if you're playing in a worthwhile league that you can afford to have a dead spot like that at any point throughout the year. But let's do another thought experiment. Let's say that's how it goes for, for you when you're drafting a team. The uh, value of a quarterback like Mahomes or Lamar Jackson, they fall into your lap. You have no intention of taking them, but you have no choice because a bunch of running backs have flown off the board. A couple good receivers have went, and you find out it would be stupid for me not to take this guy. Maybe you're sitting on one good running back, you got your quarterback, and you've got several good wide receivers, but you haven't been able to pull the trigger on another running back who you think could be a real stable late running back pick that you could put into your running back two or running back three sp spot. Are there any guys that are a little farther down in your rankings that you think are more safe 
than uh, a lot of the names that we would see in the 20s or 30s or 40s. Absolutely. There are guys like Tariq Cohen, who has a giant passing role in the Chicago offense. Okay, I could see that being a, a potential good one. What do you think of a guy like Tevin Coleman? Tevin Coleman is a guy who's going to have value. We just don't know what's going to happen. But when you're in a situation like this, this is a guy that you probably want because on any given week, he could go for two touchdowns, three touchdowns. If anything happens to Raheem Mostert, he's in that huge workload, a huge spot. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense too. I could also, you know what, I might even introduce a guy like Devin Singletary to that list. I know I've been a lot higher on Devin Singletary than you have for the past year, but I think if we're looking at like a standard scoring type league and I'm in need of a second running back after I've used a whole bunch of picks on quarterback and wide receiver early, Singletary's a guy where I at least have some faith that he's going to have some touches. Uh, I would say maybe the same thing of the guys in Miami as well. Miami's going to feature a backfield of Jordan Howard and Matt Breida this year. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Matt Breida is one of those guys who would be good in this spot because he's going to have a role to begin with. And if anything happens to Jordan Howard, you might have an RB2. Yeah, I could see that being a, a good potential late pick as well if you're kind of forced into it. But again, I guess I hope what people take from this conversation is you don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> you don't want to be trying to evaluate whether you want Matt Breda or Jordan Howard as your running back too. You'd rather be in the former situation that you and I are discussing where you're just adding a guy like Josh Jacobs or Kenyon Drake as your number two when you already have a great number one and you sidestep this conversation altogether. Um, I guess I'll use that to kind of segue you into the next idea, which is part of the reason why you and I have been so keen on taking three, if not four, of our top 18 running backs on the board is because of what wide receiver seems to look like this year. So why don't you tell me a little bit about this wide receiver depth? The wide receiver class this year, this year especially, is incredibly deep. We are seeing guys that we have, you know, projected to get 1,000-yard, six-touchdown seasons at the very end of drafts. You can get guys like Darius Slayton, who had eight touchdowns last year. Anthony Miller, who could have a big role in the Chicago offense and has shown that he's quite talented. Will Fuller could provide value as basically the number one receiver in Houston. There's guys like this that you can find late in drafts who can provide a lot of value. Yeah, I'm thinking, have, have we not done at least a couple of mock drafts where we've seen Darius Slayton go undrafted? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible to me that guys like Darius Slayton and Anthony Miller are not even getting drafted in leagues where people are drafting 40 or 50 wide receivers. I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that you need to make sure that you're short up at running back this year in particular. The wide receivers will be there for you to take later, almost under any circumstances. Uh, I think you and I have had really good success just to illustrate this for people. We've specifically targeted guys like Marvin Jones and Emmanuel Sanders as the number five receiver on our teams. And I think we've ended up with one of those two guys every single time as a fifth wide receiver, taking them in rounds 11, 12, 13. Yeah. And, you know, Marvin Jones is the big one there. I think we're a lot higher in Marvin Jones than a lot of people out there. You know, Marvin Jones, he, has a little bit of an injury history, has missed some games, but when he is playing, he is just as productive as Kenny Galladay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. And I just don't, you know, I don't know why I would want to put myself in a precarious position at running back when I can have some of those guys later. Um, I'm trying to think of some other names to give people. We really haven't seen Julian Edelman drafted in most of the drafts that we've been in, have we? And if he is, it's not too late. 
Yeah, and I think it's the same thing with Brandon Cooks. I've seen Brandon Cooks around in the 13th, 14th, 15th round of drafts, which still somehow blows my mind that a guy like Brandon Cooks is going to go play with Deshaun Watson, and now all of a sudden he's going to be a 14th round pick? I mean, yeah, he has some concerns with his concussions, but this is a guy who put together 1,000-yard seasons back-to-back-to-back-to-back. Right. So I guess if you know if you're doing your homework at home and you start to look at a draft board, you know, are you are you really going to be that upset that you took good running backs early and ended up with a guy like Tyler Boyd and Brandon Cooks as your fourth and fifth receiver and end up with prime running backs as a result of it? I just don't really see that happening for most people, so I think this is a year in particular where safety's got to prevail. Yeah, and just like you said how we can wait on wide receivers, I think we can also wait on QBs. Now, I know that people can kind of be seduced by Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and their amazing numbers, but the fact is is that those only come along so often and they don't repeat themselves. And the difference between what Lamar Jackson can give you and a guy like Carson Wentz will give you, who you can get 10 rounds later, it's not that big. It's not that big of a difference. Well, it traditionally never is, right? Like in almost every single year of fantasy football, the guy who finishes as QB five or six is not functionally that much different than the guy who finishes 11 or 12, right? Isn't that what the numbers generally say? Yeah, you're dead on. And in most occasions, let's take this a step further. Like I understand that Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes, but but where where was Lamar Jackson being drafted last year? Exactly. He was, what, the 10th? 11th 12th QB off the board maybe yeah I mean I remember specifically that I had him on one of my teams and he was my second QB and he was almost an afterthought and when I had to take him I panic took him before all of the viable second quarterbacks were off of the board and I wasn't happy about having him at the time so I, I every year it seems to be that way like if I'm not mistaken wasn't Dak Prescott the third best quarterback last year and he wasn't being drafted in the first five quarterbacks off the board either yeah, you're you're right. So I I don't know. It just it seems to me like it's too much of a crapshoot to worry about those picks. Um, let's maybe give some people a little bit more insight as to how we're breaking this down. So I, I you said in particular that you could see how people would be seduced by Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, right? So where do you have them in your overall rankings? Are you going to take Patrick Mahomes at like the seventh pick overall if that is sitting there available for you? I can't do it in the first round. It's just too steep. There are too many precious commodities there, running back-wise, to take a QB at that point. But I think once you get into the end of the second round, you can start to consider this. But even then, for me, it's too rich for my blood. Yeah, I mean, I do kind of understand that. So I guess when it comes to taking a guy like Nick Chubb or Alvin Kamara, you've got to put that ahead of taking a quarterback. And, you know, I mean, I suppose you're right. If you're sitting there in maybe the middle of the first round, and Aaron Jones is gone, Joe Mixon's gone, somebody has just taken Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams, and maybe even DeAndre Hopkins is off the board, I can kind of see why you might just look at your available options and say, you know what, I got to take this sure thing at quarterback. But outside of that, I mean, I don't really see any reason why you wouldn't at that point wait for the end of the draft. So you and I have targeted a couple of quarterbacks in particular late to see what our teams would look like. Um, So to give people some background here, we have been able to successfully do mock drafts every single time to this point 
where when we decide we're going to wait on quarterback, we've either had Tom Brady or Carson Wentz as our number one quarterback, and we've taken them in rounds 11 or 12 every single time. And I don't really know that it is wise for someone to invest a sixth, fifth, seventh round pick on a guy like Josh Allen or Kyler Murray, for example, when you can take skill players in those spots and wait to get a quarterback a little bit later. I, I think maybe it's accelerated how fast we've had to move on second quarterbacks. So I, I get if you're going to take Patrick Mahomes with the first round pick or a second round pick, you don't really care about who your second quarterback is. So maybe you're just going to grab a guy like Joe Burrow way, way late in the draft just to see if he turns into something that you can use and trade. Whereas you and I have maybe taken Carson Wentz in round 12 and then had to turn around and take Ryan Tannehill in round 14. But even that seems a very small price to pay when we're ending up with three or four extremely good running backs and five very good wide receivers to go with those guys later in the draft. Yeah, and when you look past even guys like Carson Wentz, you can see quarterbacks who have really high ceilings. I mean, Jared Goff will probably throw the ball 600 times. And yeah, you know, I don't think Jared Goff's a particularly good quarterback, but he continues to put up some stats. You got Daniel Jones, who showed a lot of potential last year. Baker Mayfield's coming off a down year, but what we saw in his rookie year was very good. There are guys who go later who can be just as valuable as some of these guys you would have to take in the fifth, sixth, seventh round. And I guess if we'd go off of all of our previous experience, especially with the Lamar Jackson example from last year, I'd, I'd be willing to bet at this point, Wyatt, that out of that group of quarterbacks that are very clear quarterback twos, Cam Newton, Jared Goff, Daniel Jones, Baker Mayfield, Gardner Minshew, Joe Burrow, two of those guys are going to end up in the top seven this year. It goes like that every single season. They're drafted way late, they're an afterthought, and then they end up blowing up. I'd rather take my chances that I'm going to fish that guy out of the barrel than I would give up a fifth-round pick to take Kyler Murray and hope that he ends up being the fifth-best quarterback. Right. Something you have to consider with these quarterbacks at the top of the rankings are you're basically drafting them at their ceiling. And if they don't hit that ceiling, it's a wasted pick. Yeah, and you can't take that. It doesn't. Your team's not going to be functional if you're filling up with a bunch of those, those type of picks that fail you. I think, too, while we're on this subject, why don't we go directly into tight ends? Because I think the tight end philosophy is almost identical to the quarterback philosophy at this point. There's specific tight end tiers this year. There's the top two guys. You got Travis Kelsey and George Kittle. Everyone knows those guys are great. They're going to go early. It's up to you whether or not you want to take them at the end of the first, beginning of the second. Then the second tier, Mark Andrews, Zachary. It's everybody's got, got their guy that they like out of those two. But those are pretty clearly the next two guys. But after that, it's a pretty big tier of guys where we just have a lot of question marks. And it's kind of pick your poison. Which guy do you like the most? So let's put a couple names to this and kind of see what we come up with. If I were looking to get the fifth tight end off the board and I were going to have to use a pretty decent pick to take, uh, what is it, Darren Waller's the consensus, the consensus five in most people's rankings. So if I'm going to use an earlier pick to take a guy like Darren Waller, instead of waiting late to take uh, a guy like Johnu Smith in Tennessee, who came on real strong, or even a guy like Tyler Higby, who was great for the Rams at the end of last season. Like, where, where do you stand on a debate like that? What do, you, what do you think there is to really differentiate a guy like Smith or Higby from a guy like Waller? Well, with Waller, he had a ton of volume last year, and that's how he got to this ranking now. 
And the question is, is he still going to have that volume? But when you compare it to someone like Jonu Smith, who may be the second option on a team that put up a lot of points, you know, there there isn't actually that big of a difference. Even if Jonu Smith has 20 less catches than Darren Waller, the efficiency that Jonu Smith will have with his touches are going to be greater than Darren Waller. Darren Waller is a guy who, even with all his catches last year and all his yards, only had three touchdowns. Yeah, so, I mean, at the end of the day, we look like we're evaluating options that are fairly similar, all things considered. Who else would we put in this conversation? Does a guy like Hunter Henry belong in this group? I think you have to consider Hunter Henry. On the higher end of this group, he's a guy who's produced a lot in his time in, in the NFL. Yeah, he did have Philip Rivers, who loved to chuck it to him, and now he's going on to Tyrod Taylor, maybe Justin Herbert. I think Tyrod Taylor is going to start the majority of the year. And Tyrod Taylor is a guy who made Charles Clay into a viable option. If he can do that with Charles Clay, I have to think Hunter Henry can still do something with Tyrod Taylor. Okay. Well, we already mentioned Dallas Goddard earlier. So I got to figure Dallas Goddard would belong in this group of tight ends as well. Uh, What about a guy like Gronk? Would we see Gronk kind of evaluated in the same line of thinking as the rest of this particular tier? I think Gronk is maybe the most controversial guy for this range because we have no idea what we're going to get. All we know is when he was with Tom Brady, he was great, but he didn't look good the last time we saw him, and that was two years ago. What's he going to be now? What do you think? I, I Listen, I, I've remained fairly high on him the whole time. I think if I really break this down, right, I had this discussion with you the other day. A guy like Gronk seems to have, at least from the outside, everything that he would ever want with his life at this particular stage of his life. So if he's coming back to play football, it speaks to me that there's an underlying desire and motivation to achieve something that brought him back to the game in the first place. You're not coming back to play tight end with Tom Brady for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in a Bruce Arians offense just because you're bored with partying and you're looking for something different to do. It just doesn't make sense. Like the the guy's got to be motivated, ready to put in the work, and he wants to win and he thinks he's going to win. It may not mean that he's going to end up as the second or third best tight end in fantasy statistics this year. But if we're talking about using a fifth round or a sixth round pick on Darren Waller or a 13th round pick on Gronk, I can't say in good faith that Waller's going to have a season that's that much better than Gronk or better than Gronk's season at all. And I mean, so far we've put seven or eight guys into this tier. Like we haven't even brought up somebody like Austin Hooper, who was fantastic for the Falcons this year and is now going into a Kevin Stefanski offense that's always been friendly to tight ends in Cleveland. And I'm sure we're missing some names that belong in this list as well. So I just, I don't know how I could really stomach using an early round pick on any one of these tight ends when I feel like I could just wait and take any two of them at the end. It almost doesn't even matter to me what two I would take. Just give me any two of these guys and I'm going to be able to play the matchups week to week. And at the end of the year, my tight end position is going to have done just fine. You're right. We haven't gotten to guys like Hayden Hurst who got traded to Atlanta and walks into Austin Hooper's old role. There's Blake Jarwin who is going to be now the guy in Dallas after Jason Witten left 83 targets. We've got Jared Cook, who's coming off nine touchdowns. Yeah, they were really efficient. He did it on, I believe, it was sub-50 catches. What does that mean for him this season? So I think what we're getting at here is that you you got to find the value in these tight ends, and most of that value is at the end of the draft. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. So from what we've seen so far, just as a little recap here at the end, it, kickers and defenses are irrelevant. You should never care about them until your last two picks. <laughs> never break that model. Quarterback and tight end, the value is either at taking the guy who is first or second because they fall to you, great. If not, just take the last quarterbacks and tight ends and be happy with what you get. Wide receiver is deep enough that you can get good wide receivers throughout the entire draft. I think objectively, you and I believe that you can take wide receivers at the very end of the draft. You have every every bit of potential to be a good wide receiver too. So every every wide receiver on your team could potentially be as good as a wide receiver too at some point. And that's really all you can ask for. But running back remains the one position where that is just not viable. I don't really think we're looking to take the 40th running back off the board and hoping that he's going to turn in a productive running back two type of season. So that's still got to be the position that you focus on. Hopefully that's not new news to anyone. I'd assume that most people who've been playing for a while kind of already understand that that's where the value is. But I, I think this year in particular, a lot of those traditional lines of thinking are, are ultimately going to prevail. Well, I think that wraps everything up for today's show. I want to thank everybody for listening. We're going to have more content coming out soon. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at WyattB underscore FF. Justin's at JWill underscore FF. The show is at JWB underscore FF. And we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks again.